Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and I'm here today with Elizabeth Disagard, who is an executive editor at St. Martin's Press. And uh, we're going to talk about fiction and nonfiction. And the thing I'm most excited to talk about is translation. But um, so welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you for being here with me today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nice to meet you, too. I know it's wonderful to get to do these in person. So, um, first, why don't you start by telling the listeners sort of what type of editor are you, and what do you what do you do what what does an editor like you do on a typical day? I know there's a lot of variety, but what's a typical day for you? Well, I'm the kind of editor um, as are most of the editors at St. Martin's and and at Macmillan. Who you know, there's kind of two parts to my job. One is always looking for new books to acquire, um, new authors, um, and bringing those in-house. And then the other part is once we, um, you know, are um, have someone signed up, making, working the whole process from idea or manuscript to published books and what happens after that. So every day is kind of figuring out how you somehow... Um, make time for both those things or many versions of that. And any day revolves around a book. Maybe I'm trying to buy this week uh, and, you know, a book that's coming out tomorrow, a book that's coming out in two years. <laughs> um, so it's kind of making time for all that. But that's also, to me, part of what makes the job so fun. Um and exciting is, you know, I walk in in the morning and it may be an exciting submission or a book got a nice review or um, I, a chapter arrives from an author and it's in great shape. Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, any of those things, um, you know, a, a great conversation with an author on the phone about direction, um, you know, anything can happen. Sweet. How many authors turn their work in on time? Ooh. <laughs> well, it does happen once in a while. <laughs> but I would say generally, you know, writing books is really hard. And um, I think generally speaking, even if you have nothing else going on in your life, and in some ways I actually think that's more challenging because then you're at home, you know, at your desk with nothing else. And, you know, there's always the distractions of that. Um, in some ways I feel like authors. Sometimes some of my most on-time authors have been the ones with the most demanding other lives, too. You know, a neurosurgeon 
somehow she made time in her life to also write a book, you know. So sometimes I think it helps having the discipline of different things going on. I guess that's true. If you know you only have two hours to get this done, you're going to sit down and do it. Whereas if you know you have all day, suddenly the whole day can get away from you. Exactly. I think that, you know, that's a danger we all know, whatever we're trying to get done, right? Right. Whether it's the laundry or a book. Yes, yes. And sitting at home, you can see the laundry. So, yeah. I find that when I have a deadline, I am much more inclined to clean. Suddenly, I notice everything that's dirty in my house. Yeah, I feel that way, too, when I have a book to edit, you know, and suddenly it seems much more tempting to clean the closet than, you know, it will on any other day. Yes. How much time do you spend with actual manuscripts? Sounds like you spend a lot of time, you know, talking to people and, and meeting with people. And you know, what percentage of your time do you think you spend actually with manuscripts? Um, well, a lot of the time, I guess, was you were asking about my days. You know, it's tough to fit in actual editing during the daytime because mm-hmm. you know there's there's responding to emails, there's responding to calls, there's working all parts of making sure books are getting done and and getting paid attention to and the authors are doing what they need to do. So often that kind of really focused, concentrated attention can only happen at home on the weekends uh-huh. or at night. So I would say that's where I do the bulk of my editing and a lot of my reading too, because it's just too hard during the daytime. Yeah, that's interesting because I expect, you know, some people will think that an editor just sits and, and reads and edits on the paper, on the computer monitor, you know, all day long. But uh, so it's, it's, I guess, uh, good and bad. Now it just seems pretty bad that you have to like take all that work home. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think all of us who work in publishing got into it because we love to read. Yeah. So in a way, it's probably what I would be doing at home anyway. <laughs> I just might be reading once in a while slightly different things. Yeah. But, yeah. but you know, um, it's always the excitement of like, if I'm reading manuscripts, is this going to be the book that I fall in love with? So... I don't know. It still feels like, after all these years, it still feels like kind of a treat. That's Mm -hmm. wonderful. So you're like dating manuscripts. (laughs) (laughs) So most of the work that that you've showed me um, that you've been working on recently is nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I know you've also edited fiction. Do you find that process, is it different to do the two different kinds of books? Yes, I think it's very different, actually. I mean, with fiction, generally speaking, almost always when you acquire a novel, it's all, you're, you're, you've read a whole manuscript. Um, you may think, you know, there are things that need to change and you'll have a conversation with the author probably when you're, when you're acquiring the book, but you're starting with, you know, say 300 pages. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't necessarily going to be a lot of editorial work, you know, and, and maybe multiple drafts. You know, one thing certainly that often happens is a book is too long. <laughs> uh, and so the process of getting it to the length that that the that I and the author thinks, or at least, you know, will will be the most effective for the, the novel may take several drafts, you know, because Often it's pretty hard to let go of your words, you know, and if you've lived, as many writers have with a book for years before they get to this point, you know, this is a book that they've worked and worked and worked to polish. And then I come in and say, oh, but you know what? 
could really lose 300 pages. <laughs> that sometimes is a process that takes a while, you know, because it's it's uh, challenging psychologically, yeah. um, you know. And then you kind of start to see it happening. And But, again, it can take a while. Or, you know, parts of the story need to de- be developed that weren't or whatever, so in that sense. But with nonfiction, you know, sometimes... I'm just buying an idea based on a conversation, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a proposal with a sample chapter. Um, it's very rarely a whole manuscript. So then it's a much more um, involved process along the way in terms of, first of all, first, you know, figuring out what the book might be. So, for example, um, last year I published uh, Michael Eric Dyson's book, Tears We Cannot Stop. And um, when I bought that book, it was based basically on, well, I had been an admirer of his work for a very long time. And of course, he's, a, he's someone who's written many, many books. But in this case, he'd written an incredibly powerful op-ed in the New York Times about yet another couple of instances of the shooting of unarmed black men by the police. And that's what we had. We had that in a conversation, <laughs> and we had to figure out how to make that into his next book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that process took some time, you know, because we really wanted to get it right in terms of this this very difficult and emotional subject um, and the time that the country was in at that point. Um, and what we finally settled on was making the book into a sermon, which was so powerful because uh, Michael is a preacher, first and foremost. Um, He's many other things, too. But that's a format that he has lived with for um, most of his adult life. Um, And it turned the book into something very different than anything he's written before. It also became, in some ways, much more personal. And that's part of the exciting thing about, you know, working with an incredibly talented author is kind of, you know, helping them to figure out what what to focus on, um, what to do. It really shaped the project. Yes, yes. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll, to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high... Just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
And so it sounds like a nonfiction book would take longer, sort of beginning to end, at least your part of the work, since the book isn't written yet. But then I can imagine that also not being true, that someone might struggle with reshaping a, a novel they had written. Is it Does nonfiction typically take longer, or does it just vary depending on the project? Um, well, Dr. Dyson's book, we ended up publishing within months of, uh, of, oh, wow. of yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, we, we signed that up in early August and we published in January. So, oh my gosh. And then that was including all the time kind of agonizing about what we were going to do. So we can be very fast, but generally speaking, you know, most nonfiction projects, we give authors at least a year or two or so of that process, um, to a deliverable, acceptable manuscript. Mm -hmm. Um, With fiction, it varies, but I would say sometimes we also give, you know, a year or whatever. But yes, um, it depends. And of course, uh, when you're starting from scratch, you can also run into roadblocks, like things Mm -hmm. take longer (laughs) or things come up in people's careers that they also need to deal with. You know, it's it's kind of life. Right. So you you found him through his op-ed in the New York Times— and then did you approach him after you read the op-ed? Well, I, I mean, I already knew his work from, yeah. from the past. Um, and the op-ed, um, he, he has an agent, and, you know, she knew of my interest in his work. So okay. that's when that happened. And certainly other publishers were very interested, too. Yeah, so. yeah. it's always exciting when there's multiple people interested. Um, Especially when you end up being the one when who you're gets the winner, the book. yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and there's a lot of pressure to tr- make it work and turn it around quickly. So I'm also especially interested in your profile. You said that you do translation, and so that brings to my mind a lot of interesting issues about word choice, and you know, capturing the essence of what a novel is or a book is when you're doing translation. And it sounds like you've done that for a lot of years. So can you talk a little bit about your work as a translator mm-hmm. and the the interesting language um, issues that come up when you're doing that kind of work? Yes. Yeah, so I'm originally from Denmark. Okay. Um, so I translate from Danish to English. Um, and I actually started as an editor of translated books. Um, I mean, I had done some translation before I went into publishing. Um, but when I, I began in publishing many years ago, I one of one of the things I've always done is books and translation. I'm, I, I believe very much that it's important for American readers to be exposed to voices from all over the world. Yes. Um, I think literature is a really powerful way to begin to understand something about the world we live in and and America because we have a very there's very big language here you know sometimes we can be very insular we have so much of our own so it's really important to bring in those voices to make us see what life is like outside yeah um so I had done that and of course because I I am Danish and I read the Scandinavian languages I had done lots of or a lot of publishing like that but then um, an author I had published suddenly with, was without a translator, and at that point I had moved on, so I was no longer her editor, and so I stepped in, and um, and I began work as a translator too. And it's a very—it's challenging and really rewarding kind of thinking work because, as you said, you know, it forces you— as you're working to think about there's there's so many times when there are different ways that you know you can translate something there are words and phrases that exist in one language and not in another 
whole ways of saying things that can kind of change the meaning. Um, it's funny, as an editor, some of the most successful translated books I've worked on are ones where they were actually translated by a couple. Mm-hmm. So one person, you know, native language was one thing and the other, the other. Um, often it was like a man and wife or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and now that I've become a translator myself also, I, I find myself thinking, that is kind of the perfect way to do it. Because when I'm sitting at my desk, you know, right at that moment, wow, it would be great to turn to someone and say, well, what do you think? Should it be this way or should it be that way? Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there are there any sayings that come to mind that you've had especially hard time translating? Or a, is there a pun that you translated that you were particularly proud of having done a good job with? <laughs> um, hmm, I don't have an example off the top of my head. But I will say... Some of it is what one of the things that's also interesting is how language changes over time, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is also a way to kind of, for me, to keep kind of current with, with how Danish is spoken because it's, you know, there's suddenly like whole expressions and whole ways of doing things that, that didn't exist 10 years or 20 years ago. Yeah, I was reminded uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago now, I did a a little segment on, on people in Norway are using the word Texas to mean crazy um, because of the whole like the Wild West idea <laughs> uh-huh. and sort of the uh-huh. some of the wild stories that come out of Texas. And right. so I learned that people like they use Texas as a word to mean like, oh, that's so Texas. And it, it just made me it was so interesting and it made me laugh and, you know, that how people can you know, we interpret each other's languages or borrow words from other right. languages that right. make sense to us that might not be used the same way in the original country. Interesting, so. although I would imagine, so for the translator of that book, would it remain Texas? And probably because I think all of us might still... You could you know, get it from the context. You could kind of get it from the context, right? Yeah. yeah. But it is interesting. English is such a... Um, large and powerful language in the world now because so much of our culture, I think, in terms of music and film and everything else is exported that, you know, yeah, every language borrows. Um, right. Yeah, English is known for being an aggressive borrower. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, English has all over the years, but, but, you know, certainly looking at just my tiny little language, Danish, you know, lots of English going on. No, curse words is a big one, but it's not just that. (laughs) (laughs) How fun. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. I I love talking with you and hearing about your work. That was Elizabeth Disagard, who's an executive editor at St. Martin's Press. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life. 
which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.